get all the fun aspects, but you don't have to worry about feeding it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think we were really weary of feeding it because we were just like, we don't know whose cat this is. Yeah. We don't want to mess up their yeah, routine it's or whatever. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Then all of a sudden he goes missing. And you're like, oh no, it was my, it was my fault. <laughs> so Trevor Murphy, man of many talents, musician, radio host, publicist, record label owner. What else can you add to it? Oh, I would just say sort of uh, maybe like <laughs> like professional volunteer, yeah. you know, mm. be behind the scenes. I work a lot with, well, right now I'm working with like Music Nova Scotia and a French organization called FECAN. And, yeah. you know, so I'm, I, I just like being around. So It really is impressive. We were chatting before you came over about, you know, like what, are, let's go through Trevor's kind of history here. And we needed to get a document started. <laughs> yeah. So It's a bit extensive. Yeah, perhaps. but you did a good job, I yeah. think. Oh, like. Yeah, I agree. And I, I first got to know you as a musician, and but I don't know about your, I guess, start in the music mm -hmm. world. I know you're from Yarmouth, which is, or Yarmouth area. Are you yep. from Yarmouth proper? I was born in Yarmouth proper, yeah. spent the first couple of years, like till grade two there. Yeah. Then my parents split and we moved out to the country, which yeah. is uh, where I'm from. We moved to an Acadian village and we kind of moved around until we settled in this place called Surrettes Island, which okay. is a pretty old Acadian village. So I went to school in French from like grade three to grade 12. Um, but Yarmouth was the epicenter, you yeah. know? So like I worked in Yarmouth, I had friends in, in town, we call it town, you know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And then there was lots of music happening, kind of like, there was a really good high school scene, but our high school scene, I'm talking like, I, when I first started playing an instrument, I was like 16, I think I just yeah. like on a whim bought a bass on eBay of oh, all yeah. places. <laughs> uh, I, I'm always a little nervous when you buy something <laughs> on eBay that's just not going to get to yeah, you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think, I don't know, I have no idea why or how I pulled it off, but I did it. We didn't have much choice back yeah, then Yeah, that's true. We had like one music store in the the town yeah. you know so um and it was at that time uh, like we weren't on like super friendly terms with the guy who owned it all the time um anyway so i just yeah so i was 16 so if i was 16 i would say that was probably like 90 98 99 when i first so you playing. getting an instrument on ebay is very impressive because a lot of people didn't even have internet at that time man i i for yeah we considering we lived in like I lived on an island. Like you had to cross uh, this three-span metal bridge, yeah. not on like the causeway to yeah. when you go to Cape Breton, but it kind of connected two pieces of of territory. So yeah. where my parents live now, this place called Sluice Point and Surrettes Island. So I had to go across this metal bridge, and yeah, so we were like in the middle of nowhere, like thirty-five minutes outside of town, and yeah somehow yet had internet got were able to get internet like i very distinctly <laughs> remember getting the internet and like just being obsessed with being online and just from downloading simpsons waves to learning how to use like irc or icq yeah, there was to, a chat room yeah right? and then ebay was like very new at that yeah. time so i was just buying the dumbest shit on ebay like <laughs> alf stuffed animals you know or like pink floyd flags for my bedroom like a like a 16 year old does you know it was just anyway so yeah but uh, and i don't know i don't really know i couldn't play an instrument i just yeah. was like i think i'd like to learn and just put in the order one day <laughs> so yarmouth like has a, an amazing history for music and i'm sure you were inspired by some of the 
guys who were just a little bit older than you who were who were doing well amazing things. Yeah, big time. I mean, so it's actually kind of interesting because I think I would there was a lot of music in that town for a long time, like in the sixties. 70s there were bands yeah. and you know playing like the dances and stuff so there's like a there has always been kind of a strong musical community as i assume many rural nova scotian places or rural yeah. places period have but in the 90s there was this kind of like alt music scene that was started to develop and most of that started to develop around a guy named brian borchard yeah um not solely him but him and kind of his high school friends and he had started this little record label which at first was called depression records and then it was called dependent music um but even that even that was all happening around me he had a band called burnt black who were like the band from yarmouth you know yeah. uh, and got played on much music and stuff um but growing up in the country that was all kind of happening in the town. Yeah. So like if you went to high school, like I have really good friends who went to the Yarmouth High. That was all they knew. That's all they were doing. And I, by the time I came to that stuff, all it was kind of on the way out. I I came to it really late. I, I would see, I remember like I have memories of seeing like burnt black posters around Yarmouth and stuff, mm -hmm. but not really knowing what that meant or who that was. And it wasn't until I bought, we had one record store in town, um, it was called ROW Record Records on Wheels in the mall in the Yarmouth Mall, and they had a local section on the wall, which was about four CDs. Yeah. And one of those CDs, I ha I was buying CDs all the time. It was like my, I was like scam in Columbia House. Oh yeah, hard go. Do you, you still know? have any fear that they're going to track you down for the money you still owe them? <laughs> the one time that they tried, uh, I was still quite young because I had like missed a bunch of payments and stuff. Yeah, and you know you had to sign the thing, and if you weren't eighteen or whatever, your mom had to sign it or whatever. Yeah. And they or you had to fake your mom's yeah, signature, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah. And so by the time they caught up to me, my mom was like, "You guys are idiots. You got you you sign a contract with a kid." Right. That's that's on you yeah. and they kind of just never called back. Um, Your mom calls them out. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and that's <laughs> And then that's they they went job. under yeah. after that. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Trevor's mom. Yeah, yeah. But I had I had like there was Columbia House, there was BMG too yeah. that kind of started a competitive service. But then because my parents were split like I would get both come into my mom's place and both mm -hmm. come into my dad's yeah. place. So I like doubled ah, up. Totally on <laughs> worked Columbia House. Oh yeah. <laughs> my entire CD collection is on the backs of those seven yeah. discs for one penny kind of vibes. Yeah. You, you could build up an amazing collection back then with, with exactly what you yeah. did. And I know a lot of people our age did do that. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And so that was also the reason that I would go to the record store often and just be like, what, you know, especially for newer stuff, it was a lot quicker. Yeah. Mm. So they had this, they had these like three records on the wall. And one of them was this band called Carrie. And it was like $11 or something ridiculous. So I was like, oh, I, that's, that's considerably cheaper than the $20 records that I'm looking at by like Jane's Addiction or whatever. Yeah. So I bought it and put it in my car. And then I was just like, what the hell is this? Yeah. It was so like, they were like a proggy kind of mathy kind of band. And this band would like all of those members would pretty much go on to form winter sleep eventually. Yeah. Um, but that was the key. That was the record that really was like, I was like, whoa, people, hold on. People in this town are yeah. making music and it sounds like this yeah. and they're making records. And that I think just like 
set me in motion. Yeah. Like I was like, I was no looking back. After so that. you had you already started playing by then? I think it was similar times. Like yeah. I was, I had been kind of like a, a never really knew. I would say I never really knew who I was for a lo- like I played sports for a while. You know, I was always really into music, but it was I think sort of as I hit like 14, 15, 16, I was like, no, like music is the thing that I'm going to yeah. go all in on. And so it was probably somewhere in that pocket yeah. too, where I wanted to start learning, you know, how to, how to play music and ideally be in a band someday. And they, they kind of each inspired the other, like hearing Carrie inspired you to play the bass. And when you had the bass, you're like, I kind of want to be like them. It's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. And, <laughs> and I was also really getting into, by the time I kind of got around to playing bass, I was getting into like, it was a great time to start learning how to play music. Cause it was yeah. like the era of like the white stripes yeah, and um, like the hives and, Blink-182, you know, like, so those weren't difficult songs to learn, you know, at the end, at the, in the very beginning. So I think Mm. I was sort of like, well, if they can make records like this, like maybe I can learn. And I just taught myself how to play with like a makeshift chart that I made for myself. And learning bass first is by, as a musician, I'm sure you can attest, Mm. a bit of a weird decision. (laughs) You know, like I, I did not, I, I, it probably took me like four years to, be like, oh, I can adapt this to learn how to play guitar yeah, or something. Yeah, usually weird. the opposite, right? Yeah, so. maybe not four, but at least a couple, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. It was such a different era of music, not only with the, the music itself that we were listening to, but you talking about going to the local record store and you're dropping 20 or $25 on a CD, you're waiting for release day, you're often in small towns driving around and listening to it in your car. Have you seen like a crazy evolution of that or like was that the height of the industry oh no i mean i think the industry changes all the time and that was just a different mood at that time but it certainly was that era of like like we're talking oh, like right before napster hits right mm-hmm. so because yeah. like i remember being in high school and like downloading napster on the computers in the in the like techno lab or whatever and because none of the teachers had any idea what what <laughs> uploading meant or downloading yeah. you know what i mean um so we, yeah we, uh i do remember that going like being like oh okay this is a bit this is really exciting first and foremost like the fact that i could just start like going online and finding whatever song i wanted that was really mind-blowing i yeah. think but it was also in the air. And I think you can look back on it. You kind of, all this stuff now we're talking about 20 years ago, you know? So now you, I think the cultural zeitgeist of the time starts blending in with your memories too. So the idea, for example, of, you know, oh yeah, well this CD with two songs that I want on it is 20 bucks or 25 bucks. Of course, I'm just going to go download those two songs. You know, I feel like I feel like I felt like that, you know, but maybe I'm also just kind of conflating that sense of how we understood them and why people navigated and gravitated towards a thing like Napster. But I think as a kid, you're like, yeah, I don't have that much money. You yeah. know, <laughs> like you had to very be selective about what records you bought, I think. Yeah, totally. I it just I, and maybe it's because we're all from small towns and that was such a experience to look forward to like the day that your favorite band's new album came out it was a whole day of dry you know you you had to drive it was at least a half an hour at least for us and you'd wait for the 
store to roll open their doors. And then, yeah, you'd spend the next couple of days just driving circles around town or wherever you could go. And you knew what track was coming after each one. Like it was the whole experience of the album wasn't just about and we're now guilty. And, you know, this isn't a good thing, but we'll Shazam a song, say, and then you lose sight of who it is or where it came mm-hmm. from you and the story. You add it to a playlist. Yeah. And you love the song. Like, it yeah. comes on. Like, oh, frig, this song's awesome. Know all the words. Like, who actually plays this yeah. song? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like a bit of the ga- that gap with technology yeah. now that's happened. Yeah. I think I think it makes you get invested in the bands you love, like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there are bands, and maybe this is just my age, too, but there are bands whenever... Like, I think about this often, but, you know, like, I remember being a kid and, like, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or something or Aerosmith puts out a new record. And, you know, the people who had always followed those bands were like, yeah, new Aerosmith record or new Stones record. And you'd just be, as a kid, you'd be like, who's listening to these old fucking records? (laughs) I feel that way now where it's like new, like new Death Cab came out on Friday. I'm like, hell yes, I'm going to buy that record. But I can assure you that like a 16 year old kid is like, why would you do that? You know? So I think it's just, we all have our, our bands of that generation. But I do think too, yeah, because you couldn't get as much, you invested a lot more of your energy into listening to a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And especially in my car, I didn't have like a CD player. It had the like Discman connected to the tape yeah. drive, you know? Yes. So to actually like <laughs> physically change the CD was a whole thing. It was a whole ordeal. So you didn't, you didn't have to, most of the time you were just rocking a CD on like rotation for a real long time, mm-hmm. especially if it was new. What was the first live show you saw? Um, well, it's different, I think, on different levels. Like at a at a very big level, there's there's sort of one, but in that time, the, this like high school scene was like very active, and I think that's that's always the thing that really inspired me to just kind of like go out and see my friends play and be around like the f- my friends. The first my first kind of like introduction to like being quote unquote in a band was my friends had a band, and I would just go and go to their practices. I would just sit there, you know, and like watch them do it. And cause it was really fun for me cause they were like my best buds. Um, so there was, I think my first like live shows were definitely of that nature, like mm-hmm. DIY shows at the local halls and, um, there would be battle of the bands kind of things. But the first like huge concert I went to was Somersault here, mm, which uh, was here. In yeah. And I think I have a, a running theory. I think I've talked about this on another podcast before, but that I think, so many people from Nova Scotia specifically of this age, you know, if you're like between 35 and 45, maybe we were probably all there, you know, because it's, it's amazing how many people I meet and, and we talk about that and they're like, Oh yeah, that ruled. Like so many people were there. That changed the life, the course of so many people's lives. Like that inspired a whole generation, as you're saying to, to be musicians or to mm. just pursue that as a listener, like seeing that that many good bands in one place at the yeah. same time, and a few of them are like at their peak. Like we never got anything that was at their peak in Halifax, you know, like or Nova Scotia. So it was just a, a moment in time that I don't think has ever happened since then either around here there was a real good stretch of these big mega shows yeah. like where there'd be like 10 bands on a bill and yeah. sometimes more 
Um, like, cause I think I, I always get the, the sort of order of them mixed up, but after we had gone to Somersault, we were like, oh, if these are going to keep happening, we're going to yeah. go. I think the next one was Snow Jam. Maybe? Snow Jam. Yeah. They had the fake, uh, yeah, the fake half pipes yeah, and yeah. stuff. I um, love that you guys remember these. And then I <laughs> Snow think, Jam. I don't know if it was the year after, but there was one that was called like the big birthday where like big sugar and the hip played big, uh, big sugar and uh no live we're at the show live, live. yes yeah that one yeah yeah because the hip were touring in violet light yeah i think at that time but that again it was like i had listened to throwing copper so much yeah. as a kid i mean i was still a kid when they came but then they come to halifax and yeah. then they start with the duh, duh, the, the fucking, shoes. oh my god i like <laughs> lost my mind do you know what i mean because i think when you just never think you would see stuff like that you know because certainly nothing was coming to yeah. our hometown that's a song like i i've loved it when it came out and listened to it for many years after and kind of forgot about it but i was at that concert as well and had that same feeling and our first kind of big show back after covid was uh, in my hometown in Inverness at uh, the Art Center, kind of the same show we did last week, but last year. Mm-hmm. And the sound man, he, he was testing out the PA and he cranked the Keeney's juice. <laughs> and I did like this flood of memories came back and it was just this amazing feeling, like feeling like I'm 18. That's at uh, the, the commons, yeah, the grounds yeah, yeah. there. And uh, it was just, it's an amazing what music can do in that way. Like you can be transported to a moment in time just instantly just by hearing the first note of a song. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, I just a couple of weeks ago watched like some of the things about Somersault that really blow my mind. I was a big, I, I was, uh, uh, my, the story of my musical life is like, I'm a perpetual latecomer, I think. So I was a latecomer to the Smashing Pumpkins, for example. Yeah. I got into the Smashing Pumpkins kind of like in the Adore era, okay. Um, which was the record before Machina, which is the record they were touring at Somersault. So I was all in on seeing the Smashing Pumpkins, but like also the Foo Fighters played that show, yeah. you know, and they played at like 4 p.m. or something yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> and so last uh, two weeks ago or whatever, we were watching that concert, the Taylor Hawkins concert yeah, from yeah. London. And we were supposed to go see Foo Fighters this year, like in Bangor. We had tickets to go see him before he died. Um, but even watching that stuff, you just like every time I hear Everlong, it's like yeah. 2000 Citadel, like yeah. <laughs> Citadel Hill, Halifax, yeah. you know? Yeah, it never gets old. Yeah. Those old Do you think classics. we could name the lineup in order from Somersault? I know the Finger 11, <laughs> Finger 11 was first. first. I think Travel Charger was. Either second or third. And Eve 6 would have been around that yeah. time. And <laughs> I loved Eve 6 at the time, oh, yeah. too. They were one of my favorites. Uh, still rock horoscope, like probably yeah. more than a 38-year-old man should. Um, and then I then I think it was the Foo Fighters. A perfect circle. A perfect circle. And then... <laughs> Catherine, Catherine Wheel, Wheel. <laughs> the band no one ever yeah, heard of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Round yeah. out the night. No, 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 no. But they were the first kind of like we're gonna play an hour set band. Yeah, and they were yeah they were basically I think the story was that they were Mike like a Mike Turner pick from Our Lady Peace. Okay, and they were like we're bringing this because it was their festival. Yeah, like Somersault was like an Our Lady Peace led mm, thing. Okay, so they were like bringing these bands. We um, uh side story. Myself and Bruce were in Scotland playing uh, 
was playing uh it was like welcome to glasgow i don't know what it was some one of those festivals that they have in certain cities and uh we met this guy and he just kind of was hanging around with us for some reason and we seemed to get along with him and we were just talking about music he was like oh yeah i, I played halifax once and and we're like, oh, yeah, where'd you play? And we just thought I was going to play, say, the Seahorse or something. He's like, oh, it was this, this concert, this outdoor concert. And we're like, well, who else was on? He's like, oh, the Foo Fighters. And he started naming <laughs> all the bands. He's like, Summer, you were at Somersault? He's like, yeah, my band's called the Catherine Wheel. <laughs> and uh-huh. it was just a dude who was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also at that same bar, the sound man we met, he was just super grouchy, like 85% of sound men. And within the first five minutes of meeting him, he started telling us this story and he was the tech for this young band coming up and uh, they were starting to gain a following and they got signed to some, or they got a manager or something and they said, do you, do you want to come on tour with this band? And he's like, oh, you know, I got this great house gig here, so I'm going to turn it down. And he said two months later, all you could hear on the radios, look at the stars. <laughs> it was Coldplay who wanted them to be their touring tech. And he said no. And he was, this is 20 years after that. And yeah. he was still, the first, in the first five minutes, he told us that story. Yeah, and right. was still mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, That's his go to story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think you regret that one then. Yeah. yeah. Didn't quite let it go. Yeah. He, he couldn't, couldn't let it slide. Okay, so, so finish your lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. then, what is like? I think did, did the order go Catherine Wheel, Our Lady Peace, Smashing Pumpkins? Is I believe. That what it was? Yeah, pumpkins were definitely. Last. I think they were last. Yeah, um, and they play a weird set. Yes, I remember. So I'm also this kind of music fan where I remember everybody being so pissed off yeah. about their set, but I was like, "Are you? Who cares? We just saw the Smashing yeah. Pumpkins. I don't care. I, they could have played all. They could new go stuff. read the newspaper yeah. up yeah, there. Yeah. You'd be all right. I was like so enamored of it, you know. But yes, I do remember it because yeah. they they were you know Corgan's a weird dude, so they were just like no hits, you know, like they weren't. They played. I think they played 1979, but it was like a weird version yeah. of it or something, but. I would like to see the exact set that they played that night because I remember 95% of people were not into it. Yeah, I, I recall <laughs> similar vibes. But I, I would venture to guess that it was just like a bunch of Machina stuff. Yeah, yeah, just stuff no one heard yet. Yeah. But. My first concert was Bon Jovi. Oh, and jealous. The Rainbow Butt Monkeys opened for him. And my mother took me and I'm showing her the ticket and she's like rainbow butt monkeys like i can't wait to go <laughs> yeah, into yeah. the show and i feel badly saying this now but i remember as a teenager asking her if she would stand maybe 10 feet behind me so yeah. it didn't look like i was there with my mom yeah but yeah it was a blast nicole's mom my wife now uh came with us to that concert yeah it's like because it was in halifax you know so some we had to get there somehow we could have driven and when we came to snow jam we ended up just driving ourselves with a bunch of friends but she was like, I have no idea what this is. I don't know how, you know what I mean? Like, just yeah. like good old fashioned mom stuff. But she was just like, okay, you got, I'm going to sit on the hill right here. You guys go have fun. But like, this is where we'll be after the show. This kind is of the thing. safe so meetup zone it after. Very, it was very nice. And what a perfect spot for concerts and natural amphitheater. I know. Yeah. You can just sit and have a perfect view and be comfortable on the hill if you want or go down into the insanity. Into the pit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really, um, I don't know. And I don't know what happened. But it's, I think one of the biggest losses in Halifax is that we don't do shows like that yeah. at that venue. 
anymore yeah. because of the way it's set up. It is like a per- you're right. Yeah. It's a perfect spot. What was the last big show in that area? I want to say like Kiss there maybe. Was, there was more something? on the Commons. They did some on the Commons. Like yeah. yeah. Okay. Quite a few. Like right after that, it went pretty solid for a number of years, but yeah, it's like, been a while. They did. Um, I feel like they did. I the like Sonic did a summer series, like where Rise Against played, and uh, like Father John Misty came and played. Okay. So they did this. Like that mm. was one of the more recent ones I remember. But then I, <laughs> I also think that like chicken foot played there remember okay. that band it's like the drummer from the chili peppers and like i want to say steve ray vaughn or some kind of yeah. like guitar dude you know what i mean i think he's dead yeah but. oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 that's that's not my area of expertise uh, um somebody like that yeah, you know like yeah, steve vi or something yeah. you know what i mean yeah not steve ray vaughn yeah of course um but yeah i don't know why uh, they i wish they i would feel like every time someone tried to have a concert something went wrong and they lost money and I think no one's willing to take the risk anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it seems like if someone had their shit together and that's like, obviously yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. So, but I feel like if someone had things organized, they could put off some amazing concerts there. It's just to, to, to start from scratch and figure it out. Someone would have with knowledge would have to do it. I think like, yeah, for sure. I mean, like a promoter's job is not easy in that yeah, scenario. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot it's of infrastructure. Risky. It's a lot of security. Yeah. You know, especially in Nova Scotia where like you got to have separate areas for booze, which is just stupid. You know, like yeah. those mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, it makes it real hard to to pull. I mean, I was just part of a concert that we did in Pumnico for the for National Acadian Day. And one of the main groups organizing it is one of the groups that I volunteer with. So I got, I got, I wasn't like in deep with the logistics, but I got a sense of like, oh, this is the amount of work it takes to pull up. And that was for a concert for 2000 people, you know, we're talking about concerts for like 20,000 people on the Mm -hmm. hill, Mm -hmm. 30,000 sometimes. So, you know, you just ramp it all up, but it's, it's a ton of work. Like it's no small feat to, to bring people to town. I feel like now more people like that, like they're not doing those mega bills, but when big artists do roll through they're just playing at the metro center yeah 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 you have a pro- i'm jumping ahead here but it's relevant to the discussion we're having in that you have pretty good insight on the cultural industries in nova scotia having done the reports that you've worked on and just having that behind the scenes lens on things and like do you think that we're doing a good job here and supporting the arts or supporting the music industry i mean i think we can always do better yeah you know number one um I think also sometimes we are, we forget how lucky we are, like, especially when it comes to something like grants, right? If you talk to anybody from America about grants, they're just like, what are you talking Free about? Like, money? doesn't mm, exist, okay. you know, and that's like a humongous, like we, we adopt our culture to American culture and they're not doing it on the back of, of like government support, you know? Okay. So, I, you know, sometimes thinking about things like that, like helps you frame it, um, I think in Nova Scotia, because of the amount of population we have, like we we just hit one million people here, um, our kind of perspective on the arts, you know, I think like the, the population numbers alone justifies sort of like the bigger spend that we get to make on arts and culture. If you look at organizations like Music Nova Scotia, for example, like their budgets are bigger than Music New Brunswick, for example, uh, or Music PEI 
mostly because we have like way more members to serve and and a bigger kind of thing to do. Um, but I think it. I think COVID really was the thing, especially when I that I was working. I wasn't working. I was volunteering um, for an organization that was essentially a. a it's a it's called the Creative Nova Scotia Leadership Council. And it's a body that reports directly to the Minister of Culture, um, like sort of a, a group of trusted advisors, essentially. But it's a legislated thing. Like it has to exist by law that this or uh, that this group of people are there to have the ear of the minister. And that kind of came after um, stuff that happened before my time. There was like a Nova Scotia Arts Council and then the government kind of just kiboshed it and it was a huge thing. So they built it into legislation that that was like, you can't ever do that again. Like this thing has to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, legislation can always change. Um, anyway, so that was like a really interesting thing because it, it gave me, an as a younger person, like in that mix and around that table, it gave me a really interesting understanding of like how government works and like how do you get money for arts and culture but also it gives you a sense of i think sometimes there's just so much stuff that happens that you don't see or you don't hear about or the investment doesn't get covered in the news or whatever so mm -hmm. it's i think nova scotia does do quite a lot for its artistic community um and you know i think with the situation we're in now where we have a conservative government, our, our battle that may have seemed like there was some light at the end of the tunnel kind of gets pulled back a little bit um, because it was very clear. And I don't say that as someone who kind of like leans one way or another, even though I tend to, but I just say that in like, it wasn't part of their mandate when the conservatives ran for election, there was yeah. no mention really <laughs> of arts yes, at all in the, in the stuff, but which was running counter to a, all the research that we have presented or, you know, that group has presented to government over the time. And for a long time, the argument was, this is, if you invest in this, it will make the province money. Like they had to go, not just that group, but over time, people literally had to lobby government to say like, this is worth investing in because it's investing in business. It's investing in tourism. It's investing in infrastructure. These things help our province make money. Like we will like we see bottom line GDP growth because of investment in the arts. Um, and then when COVID happened, you know, that, ar that argument was kind of like, I think we understood that and governments have traditionally understood that. But then COVID I think was allowing us to make these more broad arguments, which was like art investing in art is, is investing in people's health. Right. And there are crossovers between the way that a, a healthy community has access to arts and healthy is not just in terms of like not needing to go to the hospital, although there are studies that show, you know, like when people are have have more opportunities to do those things or more cultural competency that um, that can have impacts on health or even in a healthcare system like the IWK, for example, they use arts practice as like a healing practice for young kids. So these things are not just like pie in the sky ideas. They're, you know, they're being discussed and they're being reported. Yeah. But then also the fact of that these things literally helped us get through one of the most severe times that any of us had ever gone through. And so I kind of felt like there was a real opportunity in this as, as, as like shitty as that sounds. But when you're in that position and you're talking to people and then 
talking to like hundreds of, I was in an oper- I was in a scenario where I was talking to like hundreds of people across the art sector in Nova Scotia, sort of like over the span of a couple months to get input from what, from them to say like, this is what's going on in our lives in an, in an effort to go back and report to government. And so I felt like, okay, like this is the moment where it will change, you know, it will all change because we're hearing so much stuff and this is a great opportunity to kind of stop what we've been doing and reassess and figure out, okay, this, you know, where would we be without music right now or without books or movies or all of these things that are being made in Nova Scotia actively. And so I think the, uh, the thought was like, okay, once things start rolling again, that, that like everybody's going to have that top of mind. And it was kind of the opposite happened. Like everything just kind of sort of went back to 2019 again. Mm -hmm. And, and then we elected a new government, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was like, damn, okay. So we're kind of back to square one here, which for me, the great loss of the, of the COVID era, you know, notwithstanding all the people who lost their lives and got sick and all the people who lost money and all these things. But I think, the loss of opportunity from that ex- collective experience is the thing that still drives me a little nutty. Of course. Because I feel like there was such a, there was such a chance for us to say like, like how many times did you talk to people in that time where they were just like, the, we can't go back to the way things were. Yeah. We know that now. And it <laughs> took this for us to realize that. And then all of a sudden, things kind of start coming back around and everybody just like, well, it worked for us before, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I feel uh, very dismayed. No, we talk about this all. all the time. We, yeah, uh, there were so many junctures. Especially, we had no idea it was going to be two years, first and foremost. But so many moments during that two years of having that very discussion of it, it almost gave reason to why things were happening. Like it was almost a coping mechanism to say, like it has to be this way, and it has to impact people in this way for us to see that a change needs to be made or a change yeah. is possible. Like here's evidence. We're living in it right now. Life can look differently. Mm-hmm. And then here we are just in this absolute race to go back, you know, quote back. Yeah. Backwards. And I think like this is a weird thing to say, but there have been concessions, right? Like there have been some things. There's been emergency funding from federal governments, you know, um, like uh, he, musicians independent musicians and business owners have access to like $2,500 from the unison benevolent fund right now um you know so it's not to say that nothing happened you know some things did happen those were all emergency measures um and and well received you know could have been more always could have been more but it's very interesting to see how much actually how many more problems some of that money caused which is not something you think about when when it comes to the art sector because we're so starved for it. But what one one of the one of the biggest recommendations we heard from people across Nova Scotia in the in the sort of I want to call it like the end of year one pandemic um, was that like throwing emergency money at an organization with two employees is asking them to do a whole other thing that they don't have the resources to do. So a lot of that COVID money was tied to things like, okay, here's money for like a a new digital program. Okay, but if you're running like a little art center in Inverness and you've got nobody on your staff who even understands how to put like stuff from like a theater onto Zoom onto Facebook, you know what I mean? Like that 
So they either couldn't access those programs or they got that money and didn't really know what to do with it. Or they felt like, okay, now we have to do our normal job and do this new thing. Some of that definitely ended up, you know, in positive ways. People upgraded their technology. We have access to all kinds of different stuff. But for a lot of people in that time, especially small non-for-profit arts organizations, they felt like run ragged because they just were like thankful for the money and didn't want to turn it down, certainly. Yeah. But they didn't have the, the capacity to do it. So one of the things we told government was like, this is actually, thank you, but also this is a, a problem for a lot of people. And even now you see things like, I've had a lot of conversations with people in the live sector because this summer, everything's kind of coming back. It's really nice. We get to go out and see music. It's lovely. But there's so many things on the go that are free because there's this influx of cash that's like, just get people back out there and you can, don't worry about tickets, you know, and that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, in some senses, like hurting people who are trying to charge money for their shows mm -hmm. or people who have been doing it for 30 years who haven't had the, you know, who now all of a sudden have to compete with two shows for free every week in Grand Parade. Right. You know? Yeah. And those are great things to have in our communities mm -hmm. and they're great things to have in are like, you know, especially when we're trying to get people to come to our city and stuff. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have been done, but I'm just saying that sometimes that affects the ecosystem. It's like, in, it's like introducing an endangered species into an mm -hmm. ecosystem. Yeah. At the first, it's not a problem, but eventually you're going to run into some issues, you know? It's such an interesting point because I think it also speaks to something you said earlier about during this time, especially the consumption of art was probably at its height. Now, the consumer might not necessarily make the connection like i'm watching more netflix i'm listening to more podcasts and radio whatever the case might be like this is all people making things making art and but there's not like the linkage between the payment and the cost between it and and the same goes to like earlier where we used to spend twenty dollars on a cd and now we're paying whatever ten dollars a month for, for subscription to endless amounts yeah. of music like the dollar amount and the payment is so different than what it once was that I wonder if the the value is just kind of misunderstood by the general public or general consumer. Well, I think I don't know. And, and maybe you can speak to this, too, Mike, as someone who's been out there like doing shows. But I think the general consensus has been like one thing that did change. And I think for the better was like the the six dollar show is no more. Right. So like if you go to a, a show, even if it's like independent bands at the Seahorse on a Friday or Saturday night, that show is probably 15 bucks. Which it should be, you know, and yeah. some bands are like charging 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. And I think people are sort of just like, yes, this is what everything else costs more. This should finally cost more. Did, have you noticed that? Like, are you charging yeah, more for your shows and is it of, working out? We were kind of before COVID started, we were starting to get to the point where we were upping what our price would be anyway. So we started doing a lot more kind of acoustic shows and that audience is always willing to pay $30 a ticket. Right. Like when you're sitting down telling stories and just that, that kind of environment is typically a $30 ticket. And for some reason, when we play rock shows, like <laughs> with multiple bands on the bill, yeah. it seems like we can't charge 30, but if it's just us playing a show, mm -hmm. we can uh, acoustic, we can charge 30. And I don't know why that that's the case. Is but, that your decision or no, well, the market is speaking to that? I don't know. It's kind of a different audience. 
Like yeah, yeah, it could be a demographic. Yeah, thing. Right. like the the sit down show is typically an older audience and obviously ha- have more money. And if you were playing the Seahorse or Marquee, it's generally a bit of a younger crowd, college crowd, and slightly older. So, and you can charge like if we're playing a show at the Marquee, we can charge whatever we want. Like. They're not telling us you have to charge this. We we can decide what we want to charge, mm-hmm. but it, you don't want to deter people, and but you also want to value yourself. Mm. So it's that's the the struggle is figuring out how where you fit in that, and like you have to do some I guess market research and who <laughs> who's charging what and who's similar to us, you know. Well, like, even I'll give you a, a fantastic example: B. A. Johnston. Yeah, B. A. Was like. I'm going to start charging more for my shows because yeah. everybody else is and nobody seems to have a problem paying for it, you know? And yeah. BA is like the king of the five bucks show, you know? Yeah. But it's like, it's exactly right. Like he's going out there for an hour a night, traveling across the country in a van. Of course that show should be 15 bucks or something, yeah. you know? Like it's sure. it's a huge amount of work. So I'm hopeful that people have like come around to that. I think. And been think like, yeah, have, this is yeah. this is what music costs, you know? I think the, the the only people who don't are the ones like who are just away from home for the very first time and don't really have anything anyway. So you're not expecting to get them at a thirty dollar show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just they they have to have seen they have to know who you are like through whatever YouTube or something. Like they have you mm-hmm. have to have a good name for them to be charging yeah. thirty dollars. Different, yeah, different yeah. vibe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, Trevor, we met. First, I believe I had reached out to you for an art project I was doing and my local pay it forward Mm -hmm. and asked you to do some publicity for me. I remember feeling a little bit intimidated to make that first touch point with you because you're just so well known and well respected in Halifax and um, you were so gracious in your communication and certainly a big help and you did some work for us for our book as well. When did that shift into doing that style of work happen for you? I went to journalism school. Okay. Um, and I went to journalism school. I, I went to King's um, for the four-year program. So you, you can you can do two different kinds of degrees there in journalism. If you already have a degree, you can go and do like one year. And it's just like an intensive program. I, it was my first undergrad. So I was doing the four-year. So I moved here in like 2002. And I went there kind of being like, I want to be an arts journalist. Like I wanted to write magazine features. I really wanted to write about music. So that was already kind of like blending these two things that I really like, like a meet, like medium and communications with my passion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that eventually, you know, in between a whole bunch of other degrees and a whole bunch of other schooling um, that had nothing to do with journalism <laughs> or music, uh, I, a friend of mine started a, a PR company and uh, his name is Matt Charlton. And he started this little company called Pigeon Row. And it was really like geared towards focusing on independent artists and people who didn't have a huge budget, but still, you know, needed some help. Um, and I knew him sort of like through music and through the sort of just like hanging around the scene. But at the time uh, that he started the company, he was dating a friend of mine and we were, my friend and I were living together. And so I was sort of just, I just like put the offer on the table. Like when you, when you get to the point where mm-hmm. you need some help, call me. I would, I think I'd be really interested in this. And to his immense credit and my tremendous gratitude, he called me. 
Um, and it started very simply like putting CDs in envelopes and mailing them out to radio stations and just he, he really he had a degree in PR and had done some work with various companies in Halifax and also in Toronto so he kind of taught me the ropes of like what that looks like and then I worked for that company for almost 13 years and at the, the end sort of like in the mid of it um, I started like taking on my own clients and that company eventually shifted directions because he's a very a very smart dude and sort of looks for like opportunity when it's about to break like before anybody else he's one of those guys who can yeah, have, have the vision he's got the vision mm -hmm. so he really started getting into like social media stuff and content and ad strategies and all this stuff before that just became like normal lexicon um, and eventually the company kind of just shifted completely into that. And I was this relic of, of an old era of the company, but I was kind of just running this PR division in very loose air quotes <laughs> by myself and, you know, having other people come in to work with me. Sometimes I would have NSCC students come in or, uh, do mentorships with some folks who like music Nova Scotia. Um, and that really was like the that just became my my full-time job like i was doing a master's degree and that was an opportunity there was an opportunity in that company for me to do that as a full-time gig like up until then i'm gonna say it was probably 2012 maybe i was working contract and sort of just like keeping track of my hours and you'd pay me hourly and it became to it came to a point where business was good enough where i could do it as a full-time job so i kind of left my master's aside and moved over and started working for that company full time. And it was like a, so such a cool job because it does all those things that I love to do. Like even when I hosted the radio show, Halifax is burning yeah. the whole purpose behind that show was it kind of like the, the came off of, of us like touring across the country and people knowing about Halifax and talking about Halifax with great reverence, but not really knowing a lot about like the new scene or what, how big the kind of like breadth of music offering was here. So that's, I started that show as a way to sort of kind of say like, we got a lot going on here. This is a really cool town. Mm -hmm. And um, so that for me was like doing that job was kind of like that. I get to tell, and cause we were working with not always local artists, but certainly mostly Canadian artists and a, heavy portion of those people being Atlantic Canadian. So it was a way for me to help bands that I really liked or, and then to, you know, try and get other people to like them too, you know, <laughs> like, so yeah. it was literally just like a natural extension of kind of what I've always been doing in, in and around music. Cause even like I was saying, when I used to just go and hang out at my friend's place and watch them practice, you know, that was me then going out to my friends the next day who weren't in that band being like, oh man, I was at the jam. It was so good. You know, mm -hmm. like I've always kind of been that hype man kind of. Yeah. Role. And I'm sure it's that passion that has helped all of those artists. Like you, you understand what that life is. You understand the music and you genuinely like it. So it's much easier to promote that product. I think that's the biggest, you know, the biggest tell of a publicist sometimes mm. you can, I think especially when the pool is quite small, which it is today, like journalists and stuff, you can tell when somebody really likes something. And I think part of the goal was always just to like, always like the things you're working on. Like don't take the contract cause you need the cash. Yeah. You know, and right. that's a big dividing line for a lot of people because obviously like you need to pay your rent, 
but we were lucky enough in that company. And then when I split off to do my own thing, like freelance, that that, especially towards the kind of like final, you know, five years, that really was never a conversation. We got to pick and choose who we wanted to work with. And it was always working with people that we like super duper believed in. Um, and that, yeah, that comes through because a publicist job is basically a middle person between people who are telling the public about your, your music or your work and the artists themselves. So that, that journalist on the other end has to feel that same thing you do. So your job is to kind of like work them into that frenzy along with you. And sometimes that takes a really long time. Like I've worked with clients for years before that we finally got that piece that we wanted, or we finally got that interview that we wanted. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of like sustained communication between two people. Like I always tell people you're, you're paying a publicist for their Rolodex basically, but it's, you're paying them for their relationships. Like I have to have good relationships with people to then turn around and be like, and also do you like this band? Cause I really like this band, you know, like that's the, that's the make or break. And I think, People can, people know people can, there's like, I don't know what the tell is, but I think there's a tell for sure. I was going to ask you about relationship building, which you've brought up and we had our friend and your friend, Steph Purcell on the podcast episode last week, who spoke to that being really like the top priority in her work. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and it sounds like this is the key to being a publicist too. And, and maybe really for all of our jobs is like be, the relationships you have with other people leads to this success. I think I think being a, around and being a nice person will always lead you to a better path. I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, being aggressive when the time calls for it and making sure you get what you need if it's, you know, in the interest of your client or whatever. But I think, you know, we always talk about the number one rule of being in the music industry is just don't be a dick, yeah. you know? And, you guys talk about that too, Mike, yeah. just yeah. How, how much better it is in the long run to just be nice to people like yeah. <laughs> at bars or the sound guy or whoever it might be. It's just, it's that easy. Uh, you see so many people who just burn bridges and their careers don't last. You know, you just, if you have that attitude going in that you're above anyone, then it just, it quickly spreads people. We, we just were joking around earlier about, uh, I was saying I wanted to do a, a podcast where we talk shit about uh, <laughs> different artists because there's certain ones either I've met myself or you hear from other people and like everyone's like, oh, that guy's an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And like it travels so fast, especially here and in a small place like Nova Scotia. So mm. it's, I don't know. I And I think mo- most people I know in the industry are just really good people and just want to create those connections and yeah want to say thank you to the staff at a bar like that's they're not like being fake about it that's just what they yeah how they genuinely are and that's just being a good east coaster a good nova scotian you know <laughs> i think there is for us there's a little bit of that too yeah. for sure like there's definitely some like atlantic canadian east coast nova we just scotian can't help vibe. ourselves yeah. we're just like we gotta be nice you know yeah um but it does make all the difference like i just came back from two days of doing some seminars with young artists in New Brunswick for Music New Brunswick. And and we were talking about like, you know, like uh, they were all musicians, but we were kind of talking about how now it feels like there's a distinct lack of like support people around musicians. So whether it's publicists or managers or labels or bookers or radio trackers, like 
something happened there. There's a big gap that has developed and we haven't done a really good job of training the next generation of people. So we were kind of talking about how how to do that and how one gets involved in that position. And the answer is really just like have the ambition and show up and do good work. Anybody can be involved in the music industry mm-hmm. if you really want to be and you don't even need to know how to play an instrument. You know that in fact we need people right now who probably don't know how to play <laughs> instruments to kind of start coming around a lot more. But like if you're hyper organized and you can crush a spreadsheet and you can keep people on deadline, guess what, buddy? You're a manager. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, why do you think there's kind of a decline in those roles? I think for a long time we have spent a significant amount of invest of, of like time and money investing in artists, which is Needed and absolutely necessary, but we've kind of forgotten about the that other side. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of rolling over into a point where either the folks who have been doing it for a long time are getting out of the game, as we're seeing a lot in publicity, for example, because, and to speak specifically to publicity, the opportunity just becomes less and less. There is less media out there. So there is less of a need for a publicist. And as things start shifting more and more online, the way that people get their information is different. And so that role has changed a lot. So a lot of people I know are either like really shrinking their base of operations or just completely getting out of it because it's just a different world now. And that's kind of where I am, some, you know, on the best of days where I'm sort of even more selective these days, but also like even more honest with the people I work with about what is available for them. And mm-hmm. can I be the person to help you get those things? Are those things achievable? Those are all like, conversations we have more often i think than we did maybe six or seven years ago but then yeah like i think just there there weren't a lot of people in nova scotia we'll speak to nova scotia or atlanta canada in particular there weren't a lot of those people doing those jobs anyway mm-hmm. um but it just seems like now there i don't know why i don't know that there is a, a specific answer but I think part of it is just that we've we've kind of like taken it for granted that maybe these people would start coming mm-hmm. around and that we could train them up. But then it became less evident that there were those people. And, you know, when we were at the Music Awards, Nova Scotia Music Week uh, last year, almost everybody that got up on that stage, Steph included, was just like, can you can we please have more people in these jobs? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just me. I think there's like a very people in the industry are feeling it too. Um, and there's that you weigh that against the, the staggering amount of artists that we have in this province, you know, a hundred plus bands are playing at music week alone. And a lot of those are new bands or new artists. So who's around to help them, you know? And I think I I, want to put some of my time. I think that's kind of one of the focuses that I'm trying to do is like, especially in, uh, Acadian communities, because that's a whole other realm of things I'm doing. But just teaching people that, like, you can do this if you want to do it. And um, sometimes it requires people who have been around for a long time to kind of take some folks under their wing or or we provide that opportunity for them. But it's not just it's not just like managers. It's like techs, like a lot of people when that those jobs dried up during the pandemic had to go and find other jobs. Mm-hmm. And now it's like really hard to find someone to do your monitors, yeah. you know, or like your lights. So we did lose a bunch of people to COVID for mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Um, and so it's up to us now as an industry to sort of regulate the problem a little bit. And I feel like um, a certain few jobs, say like a, a radio tracker or ev- even publicist, w- are 
just just the way the industry has gone with the internet and that have kind of just been slowly fading, not like going. Like you, if you want to be successful, you still kind of have to have that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's not really a lot of people doing that in Nova Scotia and the people in Ontario or the other parts of Canada don't know who the artists are in Nova Scotia. So yeah. it's just hard, like you reach out to someone in BC who's a radio tracker they're like, hey, I'm willing to give you ten thousand dollars, and they're like, well, we have so many people knocking at our door, we we can't even take you on. And you're yeah, like, Jesus, I know. Like, <laughs> it's it's extremely frustrating, and the market is so much more competitive now than it ever was. Yeah. You know, compared to like the '90s or the 2000s, even where it seemed like there were a lot more like labels and and certainly a lot yeah. more media, and so by nature of there being more of that stuff there were more industry professionals and now everything is kind of really shrunk down to a micro version of what those booming years were. Has it made you more or less in demand? Because I'm hearing there's fewer people perhaps doing that type of work, but people are obviously finding other avenues to be promoting themselves. I would say probably more. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting as many calls these days because I think a lot of, maybe a lot of people know that I'm not super duper like only doing that. I'm doing some other stuff too. Um, maybe that's not true at all. Maybe it's just like my my warped perspective on it. <laughs> Everybody knows what I'm doing, right? Um, <laughs> they will now yeah, after listening will. to Mike yeah, and exactly. Kristen the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think that there, a lot of people still have this idea of what a publicist does for an artist, you know? And I think it's really steeped in that 90s model of like if we get the publicist we can get the review and then if we get the review we'll get the show and if we get the show we'll impress the A&R and if we get the you know what I mean like there was like a formula there there was like a formula and like um a ladder you could climb yeah and now it's it's not like that at all but people still come to the table like predicated on that idea that you need a publicist or something I think you need a publicist if you want specific things to happen but if you think your publicist is going to change the course of your career Mm -hmm. then i don't think you're coming to the table with the right idea or you're coming with an outdated idea a publicist these days in my opinion should be uh like working on your team in conjunction with a whole bunch of other people to slowly and surely kind of like make a pattern and a path for you that that each thing kind of leads to the next thing. But even then, a lot of the times people are like, well, I have $3,000 to hire a publicist or $4,000. And, you know, that's a three or four month contract. Okay, that's fine. But then like, what happens when that's done? The best publicists are the people who work with artists for like 10 years, you know, because it is, a, even back then, it was like a growth game. It's not, It's not a situation in which somebody reads an article on the coast or whatever and then all of a sudden you sell at the marquee you know what i mean that's just not not the vibe but if you get an article on a coast that's like a nice piece of the puzzle that you're trying to put together but being an artist and and working in in an industry if that's the road you want to go down because everybody has a different path and this the path is certainly not the same for everybody but if that's the kind of like infrastructure you want to play in then i think 
you have to think of it as like a giant jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. and a publicist is maybe a couple of those corner pieces, you know, yeah. but it's up to, it's up to a whole bunch of other factors to kind of fill in those gaps until you have a complete picture. I think that's really helpful to have that perspective. Like even me hearing this, but certainly folks that just might not understand the role and, and exactly as you've mapped it out, this is one of one rung on the ladder. Yeah. 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 And that does. And I mean, you know, you also have to make really good stuff. Yeah, you know yeah, that's, that's the other. That's the like that's biggest the main part. Thing. That's the main yeah. thing. You know, like <laughs> that's the floor that the ladder is standing <laughs> yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it has to be the most excellent stuff, or have a really interesting story, or you know, there are different ways you can get into projects. But mm-hmm. I feel like in an in an era where anybody can kind of make something in their room that sounds amazing and get it up on the internet in four weeks, you know, you have to think about a lot more than I've just got an album. Or yes. I've just got this project, you know. What are you working on right now that's bringing you joy and satisfaction? Oh, um, I'm actually, uh, uh, well, I've been doing a lot of work in the Acadian community, which has been a whole new life for me. You know, it's it's been really exciting because I started a French band, started writing songs in French for the first time. And when I say French, I'm talking like pretty Acadian. So it's like a lot of English thrown in the mix you know (laughs) but that's like you know my background although my last name murphy certainly doesn't suggest the the french roots but you know pretty much my whole family save my grandfather who had the the last name murphy that's kind of where the acadian stuff comes in okay um so that's been really exciting to to play in that band and also to kind of compare and contrast and relearn a bunch of stuff because i've played music for the better part of 15 years in english and, you know, learn that whole system, you know, learn, you know, that you you get the showcase and then you meet the delegates and then mm-hmm. you put out the records and you do these things. And that's not totally different in French. It's just now that I have I have to learn what the new conferences are and who the new delegates are and how we want to mm-hmm. kind of grow that part of the the business that I'm trying to work on. Um, but also it's different markets, too. Right. So, like, I mean, I played many a show in Moncton in my day. But now I can go to Moncton and Moncton is like Toronto for a French band, you know, mm-hmm. because there's a built in audience for French people there. Um, it's like a pretty cool, like alternative place in terms of like the openness to French music and different kinds of music. Um, so that even that is like it's a bit of a like work smarter, not harder kind of kind of vibe. But I'm really enjoying like making new friends and making new connections and then turning around and what I'm really kind of what is really driving me in that world right now is is taking everything that I've learned up until now and then learning and relearning new things in the French world to try and take that back to artists in especially in the French community, but not exclusively. So um whether that's like working on my little record label kind of thing and like finding some new bands to work with and teaching them the ropes about like, well, this is how it works, you know, like those kind of things are really fun for me. Mm -hmm. But also just like talking to young artists and like these sessions we did in New Brunswick this last weekend, they were so energizing because you really feel like there's like, uh, I think like there was like such a hunger and even though they know they've got odds stacked against them like never before, they're just like, I, I'm going to do this, you yeah. know? And I think sometimes you lose sight of that, that part of like being an artist some, and just go like, yeah, no, that's actually what you need to hold on to for dear life. 
Like, don't forget that bit because nothing else matters except that really. You you need those reminders every once in a while. And going to a conference with a bunch of young people who have that energy can just reinvigorate you, right? Yeah. Oh, big time. It's just that energy is needed. That mindset is needed because there are going to be dark times if you decide to be an artist well we sort of laugh we had 18 year old jackson weldon on an episode and he's just a a rising star so to speak and just a sweet kid but he made the comment something along the lines of like you guys have a dream life or you know because we have a house and we get to work as artists and we we kind of giggled about his comment, but afterwards we were like, you know, what a beautiful perspective for him to yeah. have and reminder to us that mm-hmm. when we were 18, if we were to look ahead 20 years and say, like, imagine if that were my life, it would feel a lot different than just being in this life and not recognizing yeah. it. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think it's hard to notice when you're in it. And I think that is something that I have, I think I'm... For unfortunately, like the pandemic kind of like kicked kicked me in the ass a little bit that way too, where now, especially with a new band, not that I've like given up on my old band quite parade, like we're still doing stuff, we're still writing music, you know, other people in that band have different priorities, they have kids and stuff too, so that's a whole different life than the one that I have, certainly um but also like one of the things I've really kind of like come to appreciate is the fact that there were there would be times. A long, for long stretches of times where, you know, you'd play the show and you'd be like, ah, fuck, that show was no good. There's only 20 people there or whatever, you know, and, uh, or whatever, like, oh, the person I invited didn't come or we didn't get this show or, you know, the grant didn't come through. And I really have tried to shift my perspective on that and say like, okay, there, there was 20 people in the room. Wasn't it great that I got to play music with my best friends tonight? You know, like how lucky are we that we get to do this and that like, even if it's quote unquote only 20 people, that 20 people felt like they wanted to come out and hear what I had to say tonight. That I think is something that took me way too long to to appreciate. Um, But it is something that I'm like holding on to like, you know, death grips, you know, for sure. Because it is, it is what, what makes it worth it at the end of the day. And um, lucky enough that I, you know, I can work for myself and run a little business and support these things. And then the band gets paid decent enough that I can pay my friends. You know, I'm in this cycle, especially in the French communities where like the guarantees are a little bit higher sometimes because there's not as many people in the pool. And yeah, for me to turn around and pay guys that I've been playing in bands with for 20 years and just be like, Hey man, thanks. Like, thanks for being my friend and playing guitar in my band. You know, like that's a, that's a, such a good feeling for so me. Cool. It's so cool because it's taken us so long to get here and we all know that. But it's nice. It feels like it's like a bit of a returning, a return on investment that those people have kind of stuck with me over time. And even though most of the time I've been playing in their bands, you know. (laughs) How has the reception been in the Acadian towns? I mean, it's still new for us, right? So like we haven't played that many shows. We've only been playing live for about a year. But I think what like we're kind of the new kids on the scene yeah. Um, and we're a rock band, right? So there's lots of different kinds of Acadian music. Yeah. Um, and specifically in the Maritimes, there is like some real cool alternative stuff that happens, yeah. whether it's like, you know, like somebody like T-Belly Vo, who is making just like super duper weird kind of like pop 
country hip hop stuff, yeah. like Mimi, Mimi kind of music almost. Yeah. Um, or someone like Lisa LeBlanc who just put out like a pretty much yeah, a straight Lisa's up amazing. disco yeah. record yeah. recently, you know, or these Otis Dillard yeah. who are just like an insane live experience. You know, we're not breaking new ground by being a rock band, certainly, but the kind of music we play, mm-hmm. which is more of a like alternative Weezer, Green Day, alt kind of like yeah. alt rock vibe. That doesn't really exist in the Maritimes yeah. right now. So it's, I think people are open to it because it's like, oh, there's a new band. And also they don't really sound like anybody else. And also, oh, they're from this like place in Nova Scotia. And we don't really see bands from that place very often because there aren't really any French bands from where I'm from, yeah. you know, in terms of like newer bands. So um, that all kind of adds together for like this we've been really well received, I will say, yeah. like not only in terms of audiences, which is still developing people are still learning who we are but certainly in the industry people have been like oh like it's it was so my it was so antithetical to like my experience in english music because english music you feel like i mean i I say english music because i have to make that divide but i felt for a really long time that like there was a lot of like guard like everybody's always on their guard because there's only so much to go around and everybody's Mm -hmm. gonna be fighting for themselves rightfully so you know and i certainly have done my fair share of that but when we started playing with French people and being in, involved in like these communities, like it fell a lot more open Yeah, where they were just like, Oh, you're here now. Come on in, you yeah. know? And that was very That's strange, nice. you know, even, yeah. even in like learning the stuff about the industry, like the professionals, not to say that people on in English wouldn't have done this. And maybe I just didn't ask enough, you know, but being like, how do I apply to this program? Or like, what's this all about? And people would just like, give me be like, Oh, I want to apply to this grant they'd be like yeah here cool like here the here's what this grant looks like i was successful take my template and use it you know so i'm trying to be more like that with other people too and regardless of language how has your emotional experience been stepping into the french acadian like do you feel like you've kind of found a different identity or that you resonate with that in a new way sometimes i feel sometimes i have to like check myself a little bit because i'm I don't know that anybody else will think this. Maybe they do. But sometimes I worry that I'm like, is this a character that I'm doing? Hmm. Because because for me, it doesn't feel that way. Like this, this sort of coming to French as an artist has very much correlated with me coming to French as a person. And so even though... I grew up speaking French and went to school in French, like grade three to grade 12. Like I graduated from a French high school, you know what I mean? I was like the president of the student council. Like obviously I spoke French, Yeah. but then when I moved to Halifax, it was like very easy to just not do that anymore. And when you're in a minority situation anyway, and you're in a very assimilated situation in your home, like, yeah, we spoke French at school, but like we wanted to speak English. You know what I mean? Because English was like the dominant culture. And so mm-hmm. then you move away and you go to university and then you're just talking English all the time. So I actually really never, I think even in those scenarios, didn't really consider myself that Acadian or that Francophone because it always felt like something I had to do. Whereas now I feel like it's something I want to do. And that, the difference, be- like the sort of like the points between those two things are quite sparse on the map of my life. So 
it took me a really long time, not only, and, and there's like a whole, this could probably be a whole other hour conversation of like how and why that thing happens. But for me, it was like, number one, it was the confidence in the language, I think was a big part of it, which is not new to anybody from my neck of the woods, but certainly most people in Atlantic Canada, I think who are Acadians feel this way at some times that the way they speak French is not good enough. And we get, we get told that at various levels of our lives. So it's like this psychological effect of saying like, yeah, that's cute. You guys talk like that, but you know, here's this book, you know, <laughs> like right. you should learn how to conjugate your verbs better, you know, mm. like those kind of things. And even at school, you're like talking colloquial French, Acadian French, Patois, Acadian in the hallways with your friends. And then you go into French class and you got to be like right and proper and you got to, you know, so I think that really if you don't want to stick with it it's very easy to go like wow well, well fuck that yes um which is exactly what happened to me and then finding the desire to kind of for some reason come back to it one of the things that really kicked me back into it was work we had an offer to take a contract with the ecmas and the ecmas wanted a bilingual publicist and my buddy matt was like you can do this in french right and i was like yeah i can do this in french <laughs> was not the most French or Canadian yeah, French. It, was, it wasn't the, the easiest year for me, but it did help me get it. And then I think because I was older and because I started like learning more about myself and my culture, it, it became a thing I wanted to do to be like, you know what? Fuck everybody who ever told me I couldn't speak French. I can, you know, and I, I will. You know, that attitude and that conf like it comes from confidence, mm -hmm. but it's also a little bit of my like DIY personality, I think, where I'm where, even when I'm doing anything in the music industry or anything in my job or whatever, if somebody's like, yeah, you can't do that. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll watch mm -hmm. me. You know, and I think I had a little bit of that attitude, just like a little bit of a prickishness about it. <laughs> Take uh, you a long way. It <laughs> but it did. And, and then it kind of like nothing is it's it's not a, like one to one. But a lot of this also kind of correlated with um, starting this little record label called Acadian Embassy with my best friend, Josh, who most people know as Pinky. And that just by like the name came first because it was the name we gave our house. Like we moved into a house and we were like, cool, we're going to jam in the basement. We're going to like have bands stop over to sleep when they're coming on tour. Cause we've done that for 10 years. You know, we wanted to create this space and we had this tradition in our friends of like giving nicknames to the houses where we lived. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, we've got this whole house. Like, what are we going to call it? Oh. And it was me and Pinky and Nicole, who was my, my girlfriend at the time. Now my wife, uh, and then another person was living there, but three of us were Acadian. So we were like, we're calling it the Acadian Embassy. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, let's start a record label so that we can catalog everything that's going on in the house. So all the bands that are going to be jamming here, all the photo shoots we're going to do here, all the video stuff. Like we really wanted it to be like a collection of artifacts from a time in our lives. And something as mundane as like giving it that name was the thing that really like kicked us into these like more re like these real existential and philosophical conversations about you know what does it mean to be an acadian and how does one be an acadian what does an acadian mean right now as opposed to like you know in the historical context and that stuff is like is really in my nerd wheelhouse mm. the concept of like cultural identity and and understanding you know 
the understanding, the outside understanding of what that cultural identity is versus how you understand it and the perception of somebody's identity as being X when you really think it's Y. So all of that kind of stuff pushed me towards this sense of, of coming to know who I am, I think, and coming to really love that part of myself and of my history. And then by extension, coming to love the, and, and really want to know more about the history of this place. Because I'm I'm nothing if not like a Nova Scotia stalwart, you know, and Nova Scotia is where that history for these people starts. And we are our people have been in Nova Scotia in various ways for f- over 400 years, including my family, who or it's like seven generations back Acadian on my mom's side, you know, and um, so finding learning about all this stuff, it appeals to me on so many different levels. And then coming to a point where I was comfortable and confident enough to say. Now I'm going to take all that stuff that is very appealing to me and all this knowledge that I've learned and all this, these things I've learned about myself. And for the first time ever, I'm going to try and marry that with this thing that is my life, which is music and put and smashing them together. So it's been a real journey, like a big, long one, <laughs> like that whole process for that I'm describing was like a 20 year process. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant, though. Like it, it, it's it's congealed or what did they say when things coagulate? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It feels it doesn't and it, and it doesn't feel it feels like a different. I think when you're an artist, you like you're you always strive to be authentic. So for me, it feels like a different kind of authenticity for me now where it's like almost doubled up. If I'm on stage and writing songs for Quiet Parade, like it's 100 percent authentic and it's always like from the heart. And this also feels like that, but it feels like I've got the weight of 400 years behind me too, you know? Mm. And that is very new and strange for me, but I I like it. I can really feel your passion about this. Like you, you're lit up about <laughs> this chapter of your life, which is, it's amazing. And I think, I think, I don't know if it's part age, you know, like we're all more or less in our, like we're middle-aged and you have that sense of nostalgia and reconnection with where you come from and your roots and you want to learn about that versus like you're saying you're in high school and you wish you were speaking English because that's cool or you feel more included yeah. or inclusive. And we uh, we've had a couple of guests on actually talking about identity and am I enough of this thing? That's a really and good way to it. And it kind of sounds like you're you went through a little bit of that yourself. Yeah. Well, even and even in the Acadian culture, you know, like being from, we call where we're from Paramba, which means down below, because uh, we're from the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia. So if you can imagine just like a strangely like a rectangle shape, if you know nothing else about Nova Scotia, you might know that it's a rectangle. You know, Cape Breton's on the, <laughs> on the right side, southwest Nova Scotia is down on the other side. So at the tip of that, it's kind of divided in two. And the line is the town of Yarmouth. Above that line is another Acadian community, which is Clare. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of Acadian, like, and which makes, you know, a bunch of villages make up that community. And then below that line, there is uh, this place. Like, it's like the municipality of Argyle is kind of the official term. But anyway, so the line, like, from where, where we grew up, everybody was just like, well, I'm going up the line. Or, you know, like, or like, so we call it Paranjo Paranba, like up and down, yeah. basically. But even that is like, 
we always felt like we were different from the people of Paranaho because they talk a little bit different and their culture's a bit different. The way they like their rapi pie is a little bit different. Yeah. You know? <laughs> All this kind of stuff. So even in your own communities, you can feel that. And even like in my high school, you know, my wife is from Pumniko, which is a very like prominent Acadian village in that region. Pumniko and Wedgeport which is where my friend Aaron is from and Eelbrook, which is where Pinky's from and Surrett's Island, which is where I grew up are all like extremely distinct, even though we're like 30 minutes. Yeah, you can all wave at each other from your houses. You know, so like it's uh, it's a bit weird. So that sense of like, am I enough? Sometimes, you, you know, when it comes to that confidence and that, you feel that in your identity a little bit. You certainly feel that in your language. If you're talking to somebody from Shetika or Moncton, you're just like, oh, shit, I'm not that good, you know? <laughs> you know. But the thing that I've come to understand, especially when it comes to language, is that more people are just, like, happy that you're trying and more, like, excited by the fact that you're, like, putting yourself out there because yes. there aren't that many of us. Yeah. So, like, that, that I think, is, like, a, you got to get through that barrier. But you were asking earlier about, like, some of the things that are really making me excited. Um and obviously this part of my life is making me very excited right now because it's also allowing me for the first time to like have my own business and do my own career or whatever, you know, and have that not just be one thing, have it be multiple different, you know, doing a bit of PR, doing a bit of music, doing a, like kind of making a, a strange house for myself. <laughs> but I was asked to do a series of like songwriting workshops with high school students from Paraba. And so I got paired up with four teenage girls, two of them in grade 10 and two of them in grade 12, mm -hmm. all of whom like really loved music, but had never really, you know, bit, like gone too far down the road writing their own stuff. And this program was like developed on the back of like writing your own song kind of thing. And so it was like really special for me to go to them as kids in high school at the high school where I went to. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And sit there in a room and go like, I know exactly how you feel. Yes. I know you don't think that writing French is is like you're going to do a good job at it. I know that you're, you'd much rather be doing this in English, you know, but I'm here to tell you, like, I'm like, we just got to kind of get through it and you'll find something good about this, you know, through the process. But even being able to sit in a in a room with kids who grew up in that exact place who had really um really big reservations about whether or not they could do this because they uh, you know or whether or not they would sound funny if they were singing mm -hmm. in that language and to be able to just straight up be like you can do this i want you to do this i know you can do this and for some of them the conversations later on were like if you have any desire to be in the music industry, I would highly suggest you keep doing this in French. You can do both. I do both. But as a 19-year-old kid, if you can start writing music in French right now, you will make more money and you will have a better career because the opportunities are much fewer for people who are trying to compete against 10,000 bands a day mm -hmm. or whatever, you know? So that was really special for me to come out of that project. And, and incredibly valuable to them. I hope so, yeah. you know, but it was like, it was so cool. We got to write so many different kinds of songs. Like one kid wrote like a really like sick country song. Another, another one wrote sort of like, she was like, well, they were all very into Olivia Rodrigo, like point blank. <laughs> obviously. Was, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and I was like, hey, 
Me too. Yeah. Um, another one wrote sort of like a, like a dramatic kind of Olivia Rodrigo song. And then two, I swear to God, two of the other kids, I would always start the conversations like, okay, so like what kind of music do you listen to? And they would always be like, well, Olivia Rodrigo. I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, and then like two of the kids were, were like, have you ever heard of Avril Lavigne? <laughs> and I was like, we're best buds. We're best buds right now. And we ended up just writing like, a couple with a couple of the kids like some like really cool like pop punk kind of Avril songs which Avril is just like, got a Hollywood uh, yes. Hollywood star didn't yeah. she yeah, yeah. yeah it's right in my wheelhouse too like that and because that's kind of I wouldn't call the stuff that I'm writing for Sluice like pop punk but it's definitely it's definitely more pop than punk but it's definitely taking influence from that stuff so I basically just like help them write songs that I would write anyway so anyways it was a lovely Incredible. thing that I got to do with how, them. Um, how important is nostalgia to you? Because I know your newest record is essentially in, encapsulating a time in your life and mm -hmm. when you were growing up in in this small, small area and really specific to that area, but with kind of grander themes that people can relate to. And yeah. it's kind of funny that you released that album and my news album kind of came out at the same time. And they're, it's kind of the same idea. Like I wrote a concept album about growing up in small town Cape right, Breton right, right. in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's just, I think like uh, people who are around our age, like coming up on 40, you know, you're, you yeah. start to look back at that time in your life and you, you have just, your your memories are just just you're excited about them, you know. Like you're you're remembering, yeah. like oh man, the time we did this, the time we did that, this old band we used to have, and what we used to do. And every time I go home, it's more just this wave of nostalgia that hits me, and I felt just necessary to try to capture that. Yeah, and that I couldn't have done it ten years ago. No, a certain amount of time had to pass to really just be able to feel it and live in it and look back with the proper lens. And yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right about the age thing for sure. Yeah. I think, um, one of the interesting things for me that, and, and I didn't set out for this to happen by any stretch, but one of the things that was very interesting for me was switching into another language to write the music Yeah, was really kind of the catalyst for that stuff because my entire experience with the language up until quite recently was in that time. Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm thinking about like the places and I'm thinking about like stuff we used to do. And I'm thinking about like words we used to say or whatever, you know, yeah. and all of that is triggering a specific time in my yeah. brain. And then the next thing you know, I've got seven songs and they're kind of all about that, yeah. that time. And so I think, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't set out to write a song about me growing up in, in those villages but because of that, um, the necessity of like turning my brain into a different place, it, my, my, my thoughts kind of just went right along with it. So, uh, but it did definitely like open up some doors for me. And also I knew that the music that I was writing was going to kind of be of, of that time. Like, because I've really grown up listening or really kind of like come to admire and have listened to for a long time bands like Weezer or Jimmy World or Death Cab. And yeah. I've always really wanted to play in a band like that. Yeah. And I've had experiences playing in, in like rock bands with like ripping guitars. And that's like super fun for me. 
Um, not to say that like playing quiet parade is not super fun, but you know, it was just, it's like a different mood. And I was also trying to create consciously like a different mood between the bands so that I wouldn't be like, well, why did you write this song for this band and not for this band? You know, um, the, anyway, so all that came to a head with like, yeah, feeling like, okay, well, these songs could have been on my radio in, in 2000, you know? And I think that was one of the things that really helped me figure out like okay this is a bit nostalgic yeah. now because the music mm-hmm. is kind of a bit retro for me yeah. too you know but i also thought like what would i knowing that i was writing in french what would i as a 16 or 17 year old want to hear like what kind of music would i have responded yeah. to and that also kind of set me off in a different yeah. path too you know That's i think amazing. part of it now as well is just we're more at ease with who we are we better understand and know ourselves so it allows you to experiment and explore maybe in ways that it, like you were saying earlier you, you need a bit of confidence to try these new things yeah well i think um i would say that we've like we've come to learn who we are and we've all we're always changing that's the other thing too mm-hmm. you know i think this is who i am in this moment yeah. and in 10 years mm-hmm. i'll be a different person you sure. know we're always evolving and we're always growing and um but it is yeah it is very much a sense it's a sense of self I think that's that's kind of it. You know, I like <laughs> I was hanging out with somebody this weekend and they were like telling me the story about like somebody was like shit talking our band. And again, I was like five, ten years ago, man, fuck that guy. Man. But now I'm like, you know, I work really hard to get these opportunities. I I know not only like professionally how hard I've had to work, but like emotionally how hard I've had to work. Yeah. And I don't really care what anybody thinks about what, how I got there because I know how I got there. But I do think that that is, is something, it's, a, it's also an age thing, but it's certainly a confidence thing. Do you have a practice like a, a mindfulness practice or a wellness practice that helps you grow and evolve on a regular basis that you turn to? I would like to say that I do, but I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's uh, like the, the. I, I would say if I had something like that in my life, which is something I try to do in all aspects of my life, is to like zoom out a lot, you know, and, to zoom, and not only for the sense of perspective in terms of, you know, I can to think like, okay, I only have so much time here and we only can do so much, you know. Or, you know, in the lifespan of human history, we're just like a tiny speck. You know, sometimes mm. I, I, that helps me put things yeah, that in perspective. that perspective. Mm. But I also think like when it comes to trying, like the moves that I am interested in, the things that I'm interested in doing, in addition to being, you know, making the next record and to play these shows and book these things, you know, on a very, you know, liminal basis, the things that I am now more interested in are those things that's like, how can we help the next generation of people do this? How can um, we teach people about the importance of art in our lives? Like those kind of big picture perspectives, because I think those things guide me in a different way and they let me think about things in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because if you're just focused on the next and the next and the next, that's, that's a very specific path. And yeah. I don't think that's how I think about much. You know, I, I do, I can do that. I'm an organized person and I can, you know, make a 12 month template and be like, this is, these are my goals for the next 12 months and try mm-hmm. and hit those. And how am I going to do those? 
But for me, I'm always looking for that thing that's kind of like underlying all this and and saying like, what is it about these things that will be lasting or be important? And that's not to say that I put myself out there as someone who thinks I'm making important things, you know, but I think the act of making is important. And I think that if more people had that attitude, that maybe some in some way, some of the things that we're fighting for will come to fruition because the act of doing is as important as the act of anything else. And I feel, I really feel like in my heart that, you know, I kind of have this like mantra uh, that I've like developed for myself over time, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's something like, like we are lucky to be here doing the things that we love with people we care about. And those three sentences, I think sometimes can just put everything into perspective for me in a deep way so that when the little stuff that's like nitpicky comes around, it's, it's a lot easier for me to push it out and to understand like what we are, what we are collectively trying to do as, as groups of people or communities or artists, certainly. Yeah. It's incredible. It's medicinal to hear you explain it in that way. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, a lot of people who aren't doing something similar to that could certainly benefit (laughs) from that. Yeah. It's, uh, I think a lot of people just get caught up in the grind and they get caught up in their, you know, their bills and stuff. And look, I'm I'm extremely like, privileged person i'm i'm able to like do these wacky things and have this interesting career that i've made yeah, for you've myself earned it you know too. in the work I mean, though yeah right? yeah sure like, we can say this to you that <laughs> yeah, we've, yeah. we've observed your your success and your hard work and your your you give you give so much and i think that may be at least in part of the reason that it's come back to you 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 deserve it it's it's karmatic it's just give and take ebb and flow whatever you want to call it but you you are who you are and you're one of a kind. So oh, man. that's yeah. so nice. Yeah. yeah Thank we're, you. we're so glad we could have you here. This has been one of our longest chats I, so far. I Do was kind of worried about that. No, I feel like we <laughs> could, I could go honestly Trevor and talk easy, to you. Man. Like I'm sitting here yeah. thinking like I don't really want to stop talking because I have I could yeah easily sit here and just like crack a bottle of wine and we'd be here yeah. till three a.m. But we won't we won't yeah, keep yeah. you too much past dark <laughs> either. Uh, so. Yeah, no, it's it. I I love talking to people like I, I was very excited when you texted me and asked me to come and do this because like I told you off mic but I'll tell you I'll tell you for your listeners that like I was I was hoping you would ask <laughs> well <laughs> we were hoping you would oblige so we're we're the lucky ones absolutely yeah. it's, I mean you just have such a, a, a rich life and so much to offer so much advice um, you probably are asked from people all the time just for your advice on things because you you've you have the experience to back it up. You you know the industry. You know government. You know what it's like to be an artist. You know what it's like to be from a small town, and like all of these things are in your toolbox now. So it's led you to this to this great point. And we do like to ask our artists or our guests on, on the podcast if you feel like you've made it or what uh-huh. that concept means to you. Yeah, I was recently interviewed on a uh, like a business podcast, mm-hmm. and he was like, "How do you know?" when you know when you've made it and i was like i literally just incorporated my company like i feel like i'm just getting started honestly yeah. and i feel like i've been lucky enough to have accomplished really cool things and to do a lot of really awesome things but this for me right now in the year 2022 feels like a splintering 
and I feel like I'm off in a new direction. And so I don't know that I've, you know, I've made it in any quite substantial way, but I feel like the fact that for the first time, I kind of feel like I know where I want to be in the next five years. And I, I have some ideas about things I'd like to do and that those ideas are coming from me. That makes me mm. feel good about where I am right now. And in some regards, that makes me feel successful. Wonderful. God, I oh, thank you so much yes. for all of this. I feel like I've learned so much and you're, you're just such an inspiring person and no. knowledgeable. We're Truly a pleasure, Trevor. We're, we're honored to have you here, and we'll thank you. We'll do it again. We'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do part two. Yeah, we'll have a sequel yeah. for sure. <laughs> the lineup of Snow Jam. Yeah. I didn't actually yeah. <laughs> go to Snow Jam though. <laughs> the one thing you need to know about Snow Jam is that Mountain Dew was doing a promotion that year for like a Mountain Dew Code Red. Okay. So they were like giving out free bottles, and like the the bottle caps were just everywhere on the like snow, so that it. It was. It looked like just like bloodbath. <laughs> it was super weird. <laughs> anyway, we yeah. Next time, we'll, snow we'll jam and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bud. Thanks so much. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, we'll do it again. Yes, sir. Bye.